0: Welcome to running on purpose a weekly podcast dedicated to training the body the mind and the soul for what the race requires My name is steve sisson and I will be your host Hey everyone, welcome to another episode This is episode number 10 I'm excited to share with you this conversation. I had with my good friend and mentor Joe persadis He's a uh, been a runner for a long time, although he got started a little bit later in life, as he outlines in this interview. He, I met him in the early '90s in Austin, Texas's amazing running shoe store, Runtex, that was started by Paul and Sheila Carosa. It was the the home base of a pretty amazing group of young people who uh, really helped solidify what is running in Austin. Um, Joe was a big part of that and we spent some time waxing philosophical about those early days. So hopefully it won't be too, too boring for you guys or too esoteric. We certainly had a good time and it allowed us to get a little bit looser as we delved a little more deeply into specifics of training and Joe outlined some of his thoughts on it. He's a little cagey as he's want to be. Joe has an amazing sense of humor and an understated style, but, uh, make, make no mistake. This is an amazing coach who knows how to intuit what's going on with his athletes and how to help his athletes get the kinds of performances they're looking for. Joe currently is coaching with Rogue's online group, so if you're looking for a trail coach, then you'd like for him to work with you. You can find more information at roguerunning.com. Joe is a, just an amazing person, and I hope that some of you will learn a lot from the conversation we have and perhaps even look him up if you're looking for more personalized one-on-one coaching in the trail area. In some other housekeeping items. This will be the final episode of the year 2019. Thanks to all of you who have come with me and Kristen on this journey. I know it was a little rocky and seems to be a little rocky still as we speak. <laughs> you guys haven't gotten an episode in a couple of weeks. Uh, I know I've stated emphatically that this is a weekly podcast, and I continue to hold that that is my goal. And not always am I able to execute on it. But... I have. We have both made a commitment that in 2020 you'll be getting 52 episodes of the Running on Purpose podcast. We've already got a number of them scripted, and we know where we're going with them. We're really excited about moving forward with this concept and um, just extemporaneously speaking on running itself and how the different threads from the body, mind, and the soul can all be integrated into one package and to help you have better racing better training experiences, and just generally raise the consciousness of our planet. That is one of the main goals that we have with the podcast. So look to 2020 to have much more information. Also in 2020, I have starting in with the TELUS running um, podcast training group. We have season four starting on December 30th, which is a Monday. You can get started with us. Um, We've got online programming, which is podcast-based. We also have um, some personalization options with that program that we haven't had in the past. And you also have my Austin group that I train with. I've also started coaching high school kids. So if anybody has interest, both either online or um, in the Central Texas area, i working with a small group of high school kids. So if you're interested, look me up. Go to www.tellusrunning.com, Click on Training Programs. And uh, drop me a line if you've got any questions. So one final point, I had a wonderful conversation with the great Ron Romano, who has started his own podcast called Run Chats with Ron Romano. It may be Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. I can't remember right off the top of my head, but check in our in my show notes. There'll be a link to that. What a great conversation we had. It was colorful language, colorful commentary, pretty metaphysical, if you ask me, and we just had a grand time. At the California International Marathon in Sacramento, talking through uh, sort of what makes me tick, what makes this sport of ours so special, and the and the doing of it just magical. So check that out if you will. And with no further ado, I bring you all Joe Prasadis. All right, so I'm here with uh, the 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 man, the myth, and the legend, Joe Prasadis, Who? Uh, how long have we known each other, Joe?
1: That's a good question. It was uh, I met you when you were fresh out of UT, I think, when you went to work for for Runtex and Paul Carosa. So
0: that's like the early '90s.
1: Is that when that was?
0: So I went there in '91, and then uh, graduate. I mean, and graduated in '93. So it would have been in that window. And at that time, you were working with the Austin Marathon called Motorola at the time, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, and you were. Had you started trail running at that point? Oh, uh, no,
1: I don't think so. I think I, well, I don't know. I, I, I keep having, like I was telling you earlier, I had so many things gone on in my history, I'm having a hard time <laughs> getting all the dates. So I started writing them down. I started trail running in
0: 96, I think. Yeah. Somewhere around then. So we met in the early 90s through the, uh, the most formative and amazing place of community. And uh, I don't know, there was so much wonderful energy in that space that I'm sure at the time we didn't think of it always as wonderful, but now when you think back about what Runtex was and what Paul and Sheila Carroza created um, in the late 80s, early 90s, and it it was just, it was the community of running for Texas and for Austin specifically. And you and I met there. Tell us a little bit about your background as, uh, what got you into running, you know, where, where you come from and, and, and what got you to that place where I think it was, you said 1987 or so you went out and did one of your first runs. Like, so how does Joe Presidus get uh-huh. born and then wander these, wander these ways to get himself into, into a walking in the doors at a run text?
1: Oh goodness. I was, um, I was in the military Got out of the military in, um, 76 and, um, quickly got married, had three children, got a job. Um, and then 10 years later, I'm getting a divorce. (laughs) And during this divorce, I was going through a terrible marriage, a terrible job at the time I worked for a guy that was probably the worst boss I've ever had in my life at Motorola. And uh, so I was leaving one miserable situation, going to another miserable situation. So in between the two, I would stop on my way home at a park and just go for a walk. And that's really how it began. I was just de-stressing, just trying to chill down, relax. So between this awful job and awful home, I would go for a walk at at McKinney Falls, Hmm. and I did that every day. And after a while, me being who I am, I wondered if I could run the damn thing so I started running it and and it was one of the most exciting moments in my life when I could run the whole three-mile loop and it still amazes me to this day that that it's just
0: something I decided to do and I went and did it and as a from a sporting perspective. You were an athlete and you were definitely had ideas of what athleticism was. So, you were baseball was your first love, is that correct?
1: Or right. Yeah. I, I grew up loving baseball and then I got into the military. In the military, I started playing softball and I played on some military teams. And then I got out of the service and kept playing softball, played on a couple of very competitive softball teams. And played fast pitch, slow pitch, but I
0: really just loved the sport of baseball. I mean, when you came to running, you really weren't looking at it as a sport, really. You were looking at it more mm-hmm. along the lines of self-preservation. It
1: was more, <laughs> spiri- it was more spiritual than anything. Mm-hmm. I was looking for a place in my soul. It just felt good. I felt so bad. I mean, everything felt bad. I had three wonderful kids, but besides the kids, it was just all, I don't know, it was just a miserable place. So this became a place for me to, to relax,
0: to chill, to center myself, you know, when you think now back on that, having run many, many marathons, many ultra marathons, what, what is your, what would you say to your first running self, um, about if you could look back at it and say, I want to give you one piece, one or two pieces of advice at your very beginning. What, what do you think you would, you would tell that? that frustrated gentleman. I wouldn't change
1: a damn thing. I wouldn't. I feel like I keep trying to go back to that same damn place. I forget how I started and why I started. And every now and then I have to remind myself, I'm not doing this because I'm trying to pop a PR or get some new record. I just want to feel good about this. And this is all it is. This is my joy, my pleasure. This is it. I, I started running as a place to de-stress and to get comfortable and i keep trying to get back to that same place Mm. and i'd love to live there all the time yeah so yeah i think the more i've learned the further i got away from it so I feel like the best I've ever done is to run like a 10 year old kid again. And if I can find that sweet spot, my God, I'm going to just keep getting back there as much as I can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I almost feel like we could just end the podcast right now because that's in a lot of ways. That's the experience that um, I think nearly everyone has had at some point in time with their running that they while they see the value of that PR or that Boston qualifier or that mm-hmm. selection to a particular place or time, and they, they, yet they remember this, this thing we're talking about, that there was a, a sense of innocence or a sense of, of it just being enough as it is, instead of having to be mm-hmm. um, some goal-oriented activity. It's really the doing that is the magic of it, not the achieving. That expanded
1: from just that wonderful feeling to me really thinking deeply about it and why it felt so good. And what I realized, what I was missing, and what I found there was a, uh, I found a community. I found a community that I wanted to belong to. The community I was in, which was my job and my home, was just awful. And this community was a very warm comfortable place and my god that's what i wanted to be in a warm comfortable place
0: yeah it's kind of amazing to think of the you know the place that that Runtex was in those years those early 90s through the really through the whole 90s when it was um perhaps not as successful a business but more um successful as a community outpost right a place where um amazing People showed up because, really, when I think back to the the people I met through Runtex and the people who um, impacted me, um, they're they're just it's just un- impossible to really catalog all those people and the quality of people that came through there that were attracted to the energy that Paul created in that space and the kind of open environment that he allowed. You know, it, it was chaos. right but but in that chaos was a lot of flexibility and a lot of people who could come in and and do what they needed to do
1: yeah paul had a certain way about himself so it was certainly an organized chaos he had plans but it's not like he followed his own plans even he was more an enabler he would enable people to do stuff he'd find somebody who wanted to do something he'd say yeah yeah you go do that Mm -hmm. and then we figure out whether it worked or not
0: yeah. So, talk a little bit about what you were doing at Runtex when you showed up there. You you'd started running. You were, but you'd already got involved a little bit in in, in organization and helping produce races or get involved in that. How does how does that how did that sort of evolve for you to go from being a runner to getting involved in, in the racing scene?
1: I was, a, um, I was an engineer at Motorola, and uh, there was a group of people there that had decided Austin needed a marathon, so they decided they were going to create that marathon, and um, so they started putting it together and getting people together, and all these people they got together were all employees of Motorola, so they were looking for the runners in Motorola to help organize this marathon. They asked me if I would help, and I said, sure, yeah, if I can do anything. So they gave me a title and I did a certain amount of things for them and that's kinda how it started. <laughs> so
0: And and you would run it come into RunTex as a runner yourself, but also as part of the Motorola Marathon race team that was putting the race on. With yeah. Lyle Clug was the race director at the time, right? Right.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of Pre Yeah, um, pre-Motorola Marathon, I was a local trail runner. I mean, not, not a trail runner, a road runner back in those days, but I had started running 5Ks and then 10Ks and half marathons, but they were all road races and they were all over Texas, but mostly it was centered around Austin. And of course, I'm a married guy with three kids and my kids are going with me to the races and I never had them run. I never made them run. But after they watched all these other kids running, next thing you know, my kids want to run. So now I'm registering myself and my kids for these races as well. So that's kind of how I got connected with Runtex. I think that my youngest daughter won some competition in running, some 5K or something like that. And she won a free pair of shoes. So I went down to Runtex to collect these shoes. And that's when we met Paul, me and my daughter, Sonia. And
0: Carl Lewis, at the same time, he happened to be there. That is that is in that is literally in a nutshell what happens. You go down because you won an award, and Paul generously gave shoes for the award. Yep. And who do you run into but the fastest sprinter in the entire world at the time? Because yep. he was the fastest sprinter in the world. That wasn't like he was some retired guy, right? He's literally competing at the next Olympic games.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was back in his Santa Monica days. Yeah. And him and we got his signature on some stuff. And my Sonia's like, "Who the heck's this guy?" <laughs> and I'm sitting there just amazed that I'm standing next to him and. My, And my daughter's like, well, where's the shoes? You know? (laughs) Yeah. It was really pretty cool, though.
0: Yeah. But now when I met you, I remember you were already doing some crazy shit. So you were already, if I remember correct, you had a small group of guys that on Christmas Day or some other day, you would do this psycho run of trying to hit every hill that you could in Austin and I remember this because Mm -hmm. you said to me well you think you're this young fast buck why don't you come out with us, old old fogies and see if you can't run with us and I was like oh whatever guys whatever and I don't think I actually joined you on any of those runs but I do remember it sticking in my mind of there's some crazy motherfuckers out there doing some crazy ass shit (laughs) you know we're still doing those same runs
1: (laughs) 25 years later there's a handful of us old guys that are still doing that what happened was there was a group of three or four of us that would run together all the time you know just a bunch of running buddies but each one of us we because we were doing this year in year out we would take turns picking different routes and my route was always the nastiest route I could find everybody else tried to find something fast I was looking for entertainment value so I kept finding these really rugged nasty routes the biggest hills every hill in Austin and after 25 years, all these other routes have been forgotten, and we're still running the routes that I laid out. <laughs> so, yeah, we're still doing those, and there's a group of us. We just celebrated our 25th year of two of those this year, and wow. one of them was the was the Black-Eyed Pea Run, which ended up rolling over, and now I think Rogue is running with yeah, that. Yeah, it's so.
0: it's definitely morphed from place to place. Um, tell me, I think the one that you did in Christmas, is, is it Christmas one that you hit every hill, which is the... What's the one that I'm remembering that you guys did? You hit a ton of hills, and I think it was a 20-miler or something of that All nature? of them
1: were that way, but yeah. that,
0: there was one we did just
1: for Christmas. and We've already got it planned this year for the 22nd, I think. We're doing it again this year, and we start, we start down at uh, Austin High School, and we run all the way up through all the hills to... Uh, till we get to far west and ladera norte then we turn around and run back south but that's about 20 22 miles yeah and there is another one we do in the summertime that that we do in the hottest day of the year usually we do it in august and we run from austin high school down to city park and we take all the hills that we can on that one as well but that's just 15 miles <laughs> so
0: yeah that was my introduction to joe presides was yeah this this crazy business and at that point you'd already started moved uh, you were still you'd started getting dipping your toe into the trail world right because that was where you could find these more extreme kind of opportunities is that why you moved that direction or was there other antecedents to that other um, reasons for that
1: through the motorola marathon joyce and i were trans um, we were trying to uh we were going to the expos for all these other major cities to promote the austin marathon so because of that, we would go to New York or Chicago or L.A., and, and we would run the race while we we're promoting the race. So we were doing five, six, seven marathons a year. And after about six or seven years, we'd accumulated quite a handful of marathons already, and we were probably getting a little bored of it. Mm-hmm. They were all starting to look the same, feel the same. And I saw an ad in the paper for a trail race, so I figured, wow, this looks really good. And it was a 50-miler. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for this 50 mile trail race just Sun Mart? point blank at Sunmart yeah. yeah and my wife I told her about it and she goes, what are you nuts did you <laughs> did you see the distance I said yeah, it says 50 miles she goes and you think you can run 50 miles I don't have a clue I don't care I just want to go out and get in it right I want to go play I don't give a damn if I can finish the thing and that's kind of how I got started. <laughs> <laughs> and that's been my attitude i i haven't been concerned about how fast or how far it's just i wanted to go play i wanted to get in it i wanted to immerse myself in it and that's kind of been my attitude
0: from the beginning have you ever had um time related goals were you ever oh, sure. of the mindset where that was where you were really trying to do sure
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah i'll have time goals but i don't know um you, you get in a race, and you have a time goal, and one out of every three years, you actually hit your time goal. The rest of the time, you hit some variation from A to Z, and, and then you start going into races with 20 different goals. Okay, this is my A goal, this is my B goal, all the way down to Z goal, where you just want to finish. And after a while, I realized that my best races, my favorite races, had nothing to do with how fast I ran them. Hmm. Truth is, I like a good story. And the best stories aren't when everything worked. The best stories is when shit goes all haywire and you try to solve it. And probably the best story I've ever written was one where I failed. I didn't finish the race in time. I did not finish. And it's probably one of my best stories, my best races. So So tell us that story. Hard Rock. Uh I'd run Hard Rock like six years in a row. Mm -hmm. And Hard Rock's probably one of the most difficult hundreds on the planet. It's up in Colorado. It goes over... I, can, I think 11-13ers, one fourteener, er and it drops down to seven or 8,000 in between. It t- they give you two days to run the damn thing. And I surprised everybody by going out there from Texas and finishing the thing. And I'm not an elite runner by any means. I'm just a guy that's been doing this a long time. So I finished the race. So I went back next year. I did it again. I went back again and finished again. Six years in a row, I went out there and finished the race. Year seven, I went out there. And I didn't realize it, but I was dealing with edema. I was starting to get edema. And so now I'm having a problem trying to breathe. Even after I'm acclimated, my lungs are starting to fill up with fluid. But I'm bullheaded ultra trail runner. So I just keep going, even though I know I can't breathe very well. And so I I keep going and I make the final cutoff and I'm heading to the to the finish line. And the finish line is probably just five miles away, but it's a couple thousand feet and it's one hell of a story still. And I don't make it. I don't get there in time, but I, I get to the finish line and I give my wife a hug and we walk off to our room and that's the end of it. But <laughs> it's more in how it felt and how the story was told. But, uh, anyway,
0: does your, your experience of that, you know, what I call a failure, which I now have said failure is really what everybody else calls it. It's like, Really much more than that, I was telling somebody that these are something I call shit sandwiches right they're they're they taste terrible um, and then when you have a great race, it's an ice cream sandwich right It's incredible but ice cream sandwiches are not very nutritious like, you, you don't you don't get much from them you don't learn anything when everything works yeah you th-
1: you assume that you did everything right and and more correctly probably you did all the right training you had the perfect weather that day. And maybe things lined up, but so much of that is is accidental. It's circumstance. I mean, you can do all the right things and stuff doesn't work. So I don't know. All the stars rarely ever line up, and when they line up, you celebrate the hell out of it. But you can't expect that's going to happen again. The next race, you do. You hope it happens again, but that's usually not how
0: it works. How do you coach that? Because you're a coach as well now. You've been co- how long have you been coaching, Joe? Oh. So I started coaching, um, 25 years ago, I guess. Yeah. And so how do you, most of your athletes that come to you aren't coming to you because you have this wise and sage attitude about failure. They come to you because they want to, they want to have these race results. So how do you process and play with the fact that you know that challenges are going to come into play and that they may not succeed every time? How do you, how do you frame that for them as athletes? Do you, do you get them to come to Jesus early and say, wake up? Or do you say, hey, let's get your hand on that fire and burn a few times and we'll teach you how to deal with that? You and I both both
1: know that after doing this for so many years, coaching isn't just about the numbers. It's not just about doing the right drills. It's more life coaching. If you get these people to live correctly, eat correctly, take care of themselves correctly, they're going to run better. So if you coach them to live a better life, they're going to run better. So it starts there. Mm-hmm. Besides that, stuff's going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. You're going to do all the perfect training. You're going to get the worst weather day of the year, and you're going to have a lousy race. And you're going you're to, first off, blame yourself. Say you didn't do the training right, or your coach didn't train you right. And it has nothing to do with any of that. It's just bad luck. You had a bad weather day. Tough shit. The real thing here is you have to learn to roll with that and say, okay, this didn't work. I've got the training. Let's roll to the next race. Let's look at the next thing. I'm in great shape right now. This didn't work. It's not my fault. Or it is my fault. I blew it up. But whatever. You can take this and roll to the next one. They don't shoot you when you fail. (laughs) You're not dead. You can take this and take this experience. And truthfully, you've learned a lot from this. You're not going to make those same mistakes again. Or maybe you're going to say, okay, when the race starts and the weather is 100 degrees and 90% humidity, you're going to say, I'm not going to hit my goal today. I'm not. But I'm going to have fun today. I'm going to go out and run this race. But you're not going to have your best race. And you know what? It's not a big
0: deal. It's okay. Do you have specific tactics or or <clears throat> ways that you suggest your athletes deal with that in real time? Or do you let them sort of learn that as they go? My God, everybody's so different. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, we're a world of individuals. Every single person has a different set of life experiences and how they deal with stuff is how you define them. I mean, in my world, I don't really know somebody until I see them under stress. A lot of people put on these great faces and what's hidden behind them is not this great thing. So what you have to do is just, you just work with each person, find out who they are, try to get the best you can out of them, but some of them don't deal with it well. And I am a running coach that seconds as a amateur life coach, but the truth is I'm not a professional at this, and I can't deal with all the psychological issues. I can try to give my input, but my input is a stoic military background, deal with it, kind of thing, just suck it up and deal with it. And some people don't deal with that sort of attitude at all. And I'm like, okay, this
0: is me. This is what you get. I'm sorry.
1: Maybe you need a different coach.
0: Right. (laughs) When you think about the athletes that you do work with and you take somebody on, are you looking and they they come to you and say, hey, I want to run. Typically you're working with trail people, right? People who are running trail races or do you work with road runners and as well. I used to work a lot with road
1: runners too, but now it's almost entirely trail. I, I, the road runners I'm working with are some of my own family members or their friends. They'll call me up and say, hey, I finally decided to run a marathon. So i work with them, but it's rare. Usually I'm working with trail runners now.
0: And when they come to you, are they coming to you with a goal race? Are they saying to you, Joe, I want to run um, my first hundred or my first 50.
1: Oh my God. It's everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. Some people will come to me and they say, okay, I've run this race and I don't look, I think I can do a lot better. I want you to get me to where I can run this race a lot better. And I'm like, okay, this is what you got to do. We're going to sit down and work out a plan. This is the speed you ran. These are the efforts you put in. We need to improve all of that. So we'll start with speed and we're going to build up. Okay. But some other people get to me and they've been working with an elite coach that they hired on the internet, somebody that's just one of the fastest runners in this country. And they're being coached by this guy, this world-class, but this guy is a 260 pound 50 year old man that just can't do what this guy's telling him to do. And they're mm-hmm. showing up this race, just beat to death. Their legs are tired. They're not going to do well. So I, I, and working with each one of these people individually. Find out who they are, what they want to do. We'll talk about the reality of it. I'll have people that are not very good runners that have this immense idea in their head about how good they're gonna be, and they're never gonna get there. (laughs) And then I have these other people that have all the talent in the world, and they have no confidence, it's hard to get. I'd love to take those two people and put them in the same body. Mm. But well, we can't do it. So you find out what you got, you deal with them, you find out their goals, what they're training for, where they live at. One of the most difficult circumstances I had was working with a guy in Russia, lived in Moscow, that was training for a hundred miler in the winter time. So this guy was doing his training, playing basketball. <laughs> wow. He spent all of his time playing, he's playing basketball tournaments. That's what he wanted to do. So we tried to work around that. So it's wide open, how I train people
0: do you I, have any fundamental principles that you sort of work from like some ideas that, you know, you know, generally I like to stay, I like this to happen or that, you know, I'll give you an example for myself just to give. So I, I usually say miles matter. So people need to run in order to be good at running. You need to run. And then I'll look and say, okay, let's get as many miles as we can get in on this particular body with their lifestyle, with their stress and where they're at. So a lot of times my first operating principle is I've, I have many operating principles, but one of them, for example, is just, getting them to their what I call sweet spot from a mileage perspective. Yep. Do you have some of those that you sort of when you first work with somebody that you say, let's, let's work on this, this, and this. And that way I get a feel for how you're operating and where your space is psychologically and what you're willing to, to do. And then also that allows you to say, okay, I can start moving this person towards the goals that they've set. Do you have a, a few operating sort of major principles that you operate from or one or two of them?
1: Certainly I do. Mm. I mean, I think probably one of the keys is consistency. There's people that um, it's hard to get them to do all the workouts that they need to do. And I think if a person was consistently running, consistently moving, consistently doing something on a regular basis, then they're going to stay more fit. I think if I can keep a person fit, they're going to do well. On top, after that, Then there's the other extreme where some people, when you give them a good workout or something that they feel is really helping them, then they tend to try to double up. They try to do more and you're like, no, hold on a second. You're doing too much. I have to find a sweet spot between getting them to consistently run and to back off and do enough recovery where they're not destroying themselves. And so, and every runner, again, is different. So one person's recovery day may be off, and another person's recovery may, day may be an easy run. So, again, I'm trying to read these people, but consistency, I think, is one of the most important things. Recovery is also very important. So, Do
0: you find that these, you've coached both road and trail runners over the years, do you find there's a difference between them? or Absolutely. Do you, and, and what differences do you see? I think one of the key differences that a lot of the people I get
1: that come to me from road that want to try some long trail race, the biggest difference is, is when they're running road, their goal is to lay down a constant, consistent effort that they can maintain for the entire race. And the golden, the golden spot for them is to actually run a negative split. Mm -hmm. That's probably the golden spot. But. When we run trail races, we're running from aid station to aid station. So there's no such thing as a consistent effort for the whole race. There's not any trail runners in any race except for maybe Giannis Kuros who will get in a race and lock in an effort and hold it the same race. They they don't do it like that. They're running five miles to the next aid station, then five miles again to the next aid station. So basically, what I'm taking these people and getting them to do is learn how to do long intervals. Run for five miles. If they're training for a race at their aid stations every five miles, I want them to run five miles and then do a recovery. Then five miles and then do a recovery. And then five miles and then do a recovery. So they're doing long intervals. It does a couple of things for them. First of all, it it gets them to train like they're actually going to race. The second thing is is it's going to give them a recovery period, which they probably wouldn't do. Most trail runners, the further they go, the slower they get. So this uh, absolutely gives them a recovery space so they can maintain that effort for the whole race. But the third thing that's almost hidden in this is most people that run endurance running, they have to fuel themselves while while they're running, and they don't train to do that. They wait until they're in the race, then they're like, okay, I have to stop and eat. I have to get something to drink. I have to get something to eat.
0: And they can have, and they have their their pick of the litter there on a, at a trail race. They've got all kinds of shit they can eat. Too.
1: And that's true in a race, you're going to do that. But when you're training, people don't do that. They'll go out there for a twenty mile run or a twenty five mile run. They'll run twenty five miles and they'll eat when they're hungry or whatever. But if you create an interval process so that the runner during their training is going to eat and drink at these slow-down increments because they're going to slow down. They're going to be able to eat. They're going to be able to drink. They have time to do that. They can process this, and then they start running again. This is how the race is going to go, and it's going to train you to eat correctly in a more regular interval. Another problem ultra runners do is, new ultra runners do, is they will wait until they're really hungry, and then they'll gorge themselves. They'll just load up. Because they don't want to eat again for a while. And then their stomach's going to fill up with this brick because your body can't process that much at once. When the more correct way is to eat small amounts at regular intervals so your body can deal with it. You're not upsetting your stomach. So if you do this in training, doing these long intervals where you can eat and drink during these long intervals, it just fits better than how they train during a marathon. In a marathon, it's not like that at all.
0: Yeah. It's not. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I use this, the term I use for what you're describing is what does your race require? Like, So what specifically is needed to get through from the start line to the finish line the way you need to do so? And if you don't prepare for what your race is asking of you, then you're not ready. I mean, it's like an 800-meter an runner who, whether it's an 800 meters or 800 miles, you need to know what the, you have to predict in some way, shape, or form what's going to happen during those distances and what you need to be prepared for. And mm-hmm. then to train your body and mind, right, to right. be ready for both of those two things. Right. So from a, when you think about the, you know, we moved from your from a short little bit of, of history straight into <laughs> all the stuff, which is where I knew this was going to happen. So we'll be reaching back into the past and then coming back to the to now. But one, but since we're on this topic of sort of like training specific stuff, what what kinds of things are we have a lot of the listeners of this podcast are people who play both in the trail world and the road world, but mostly they're road runners what mental things do you find that you really have to overcome for a person that's come from the roads and maybe been successful? And as they decide to explore the idea of doing ultra runs or just trail runs, even because, you know, you know, trail running basically in my mind is anything lower than 50 K and ultra running in my mind is anything over 50 K. I would, I would argue that 50 miles is the real number where ultra running starts. I mean, you and I both know, that anybody that's ready for a marathon can run a 50K without any problem at all, really. And, uh, and so really it kind of is just a trail marathon for a lot of people. But um, what, what experiences do you think psychologically or mentally that a person who's a marathoner, let's say, and decides to move to something like a 50 miler or, or, or more, what are you working on with them? What do you know that they're going to have problems with? And then what do you start to do to try to help them um, be better prepared for what they're going to experience?
1: Road runners are mostly keyed on time goals and trail runners are keyed on specific location goals. Trail runners are running from station to station. They don't think beyond that. They want to run the best they can to the next station. They may know they're running 50 miles or 100 miles. But it's such a big thing that you don't want to think like it. It's almost like going to college. You don't think about graduating from college when you're in your semester year. Or you think about the next semester, the next class. And trail running is the same thing. We don't want to think about 100 miles. We want to think about how far the next aid station, what's between here and there. So first of all, you change your way of thinking. You quit thinking big picture. You think about the smaller. You break it up into little increments. The other thing is, is trail running simply takes longer. There's more uh, things in the way. There's more impediments. There's more rise, fall. And, and then again, maybe I'm stretching it because trail, trail races can be just about anything. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about a, a race that's more rugged, more technical, then it's going to take a lot more time. When you go to run marathons around the country... Uh, You look at Chicago or L.A. or Boston or whatever else, and there's a bit of variation between each one of those. But overall, your time isn't going to be a huge difference between one and the other. I mean, for you, maybe 15 minutes is a huge difference, but in a trail running, 15 minutes isn't
0: it isn't a damn thing. Yeah. For most marathoners, if they ran the toughest course at Boston or they ran a flat course at Chicago, they're not going to be more than five minutes different, really. Right. Probably that range. Right. No matter where they're at, whether they're a 230 marathoner or a five-hour marathoner, you know, it's probably in that five to 10-minute range. There's that, that's something that, you're right, every roadrunner can take for granted. And so their thinking is around
1: how fast they're running. And while they're running, they'll look at their watch and they'll say, okay, I'm going too fast or I'm going too slow. Well, when you're in a trail race, and if you go to a trail race straight from a road race, just know before you even start that your time's going to be slower. You're going to freak out because you're going to be a mile into this thing and you're like, oh my God, it's the slowest mile I've ever run. Or you're going to be five miles into this thing, say, or 10 miles into this thing and saying, oh my God, I am just dead. I can't believe how slow I am. But you may have, be on a a course you know record-setting pace you may very well be um, because it's just slower to do these things i've had people that came from road races and they looked at the times of a race that i'd been running for years and they're looking at it and say well damn all these people are walking my god i can kick their asses there's no (laughs) way i can't win this thing and then they get out there and reality sets in they find out wow this is different It's a lot different. You have to navigate terrain. And we don't talk about pace at all in trail races. We talk about effort. You're going up a mountain. Your effort is going to be a lot tougher than it is going down the mountain. But it's your time is going to be flipping crazy different.
0: Yeah. So I do think that that's something I've experienced personally. Uh, I've been running trails my whole life. But it was when I met you, Joe, that I was got pretty serious about trail running You and I, um, you were a a mentor to me in a lot of ways about the, that you, you'd say to me all the time, it's different, Steve, it's different, Steve. And I would disregard you at nearly every turn, didn't I? Yeah, you did. (laughs) And I would always be like, no, it's not that much different. And I would go into any trail race I ran as if it were a cross country race, not a trail race. And nearly every time. I'd get goat roped and I'd get my ass kicked. And whether I got my ass kicked by the competition or the course, a lot of times I was fast enough that maybe no one could beat me. But yet you and I both knew that there was a lot I left out on that course by not um, having an approach that said, hey, slow down, find a rhythm, get an effort and approach this. From a from a place to place, you were the first person that ever talked to me about running from aid station to aid station. To me, I always could only think of it from a big picture. And even as a fifty k, I was like, well, whatever. It's like it's just a little bit further than a marathon. And yet, when I would get to the finish line, if I was in a two thirty marathon shape, I'm getting to the finish of this thing. And three and a half hours like that's a that's not just those are that's an hour difference on your feet like that's a huge amount of time for someone who is not used to spending extended periods of time on their feet
1: let me let me tell you about uh rocky raccoon 100 miler and i think it was 06 where i watched a guy come in and set a world record at the 100 mile race and this guy just ran the fastest time anybody's ever run for that distance on a trail. And it was probably somewhere around eight minute pace. Overall, every picture of this guy in a race was standing at an aid station eating. <laughs> every picture of him was standing at an aid station eating. And this guy's setting a world record. So he must have been running sevens between the stations or maybe less than that. But he took care of himself. He took care of his nutrition. He took care of all the things he needed to do. He didn't get hurried. He didn't get rushed because then again, that burns energy. That just wrecks you as well. So the best thing you could do, and the way I coach a lot of these people, is when you start this race, when you begin this race, when you got all that damn energy, try as hard as you can to run comfortably. Hmm. Don't, don't push yourself hard don't back off and throw away the time either find that sweet spot that 100 mile spot and hold that for a while hold that until and, and you your, find your rhythm
0: and so your first time marathoner ultra marathoner who's running let's say 50 or 100 for their first one well, most people usually will unless they're crazy um they'll jump they'll do a either a 50 miler or a, or a 100k before they Make that foray up to the 100 mile distance, but how do you prepare them for that? How do you, what do you tell them in a from a training perspective to get them to to trust that and to feel that? Are there things you do, or you just say, you, you just keep correcting as they go along?
1: Well, first of all, it's just time on feet, it's experience. You get out there and you run, you train, you put in some miles. Uh, another thing that a lot of folks don't even think about is when you're running that long, you may very well be running into the night. So a lot of people show up at these races, and they don't even have a flashlight, and they're going to be out there for 16 or 18 hours, and there's not a single day, unless you're in Alaska, that goes in daylight for that long. So you have to get them used to running in the dark. You have to get them used to uh, just being out there on their feet that long. So in the early years, we would do back-to-back long runs to get them used to that, which I don't coach that anymore, but that's what we used to do.
0: Why don't you do that?
1: I think that I'm more of a believer in recovery than I am in doing some sort of psychological self-test to see if you can get up and go again. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people are just strong and they don't need that personal self-test. And I think, well, I think when you're young, you can pull off damn near anything you want. You can damn near apply any training philosophy and get to the same damn place. But when you're older or maybe you're heavier or maybe you've had some other issues i'm coaching people with prosthetics as well Mm -hmm. and so you talk about okay recovery is pretty damned important so the way i coach it now is is that if you want to do back-to-backs go do it but i'm not going to recommend it and i don't think you should do it regularly back-to-back long run is fine but Anything that you want to do that is a little insane is fine as long as you don't make it a consistent thing.
0: Hmm. So, Yeah. And that experience, so you said here you have a... some. So if you're not going to do back-to-backs, how are you psychologically preparing them for what their race is going to require for them?
1: Let, let me give you an example of how I would build a training plan for somebody that's about to run like a 100-mile race. I would start with their longest run being maybe... 50 to 55 miles so they're not going to run within 15 percent of 100 miles would you Uh, put
0: that in a race context for them or would you make them have them run or would you run that would they run that in a training run how would you approach however however it fit right
1: however it fit i i would build a training plan where they would have a run on a weekend three to four weeks out from this 100 miler where they would do 50 to 55 miles and if they could do it on a race it's even better but they didn't have to do it on a race. Right.
0: And actually maybe be harder to do it. Not in a race.
1: It it would be harder to not do it in a race In a race. You're actually paying somebody else to take care of you. (laughs) So, so true. (laughs) If if you pay somebody for a race entry, you can go do a training run. And basically you're paying somebody to take out there and hand you water and give you food. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) if you want to do it in a race, great. But, a lot of times your training plan doesn't line up that way. So you have to do it on your own. You got to go out somewhere maybe you can talk some buddies into going with you, but you have to do this. And from that point, three to four weeks out, then I would build backwards. Like every two weekends, I would drop 15% off of that distance. So maybe 15% of that would be close to five miles. So, 50 miles, you go back two weeks, you do a 45, go back two weeks, you do 40, go back two weeks, you do 35 until you get down somewhere around 26 miles. And then once I got around 26 miles, we'd turn it into a, basically a marathon training program below that. Yeah.
0: And you kind of look at it that way.
1: And I would look at it that way too. But in between those long runs, what I would do is I would drop it to like 15 miles or I would do a weekend off. And what I would more specifically try to do is once a month, they would force them to have a weekend off where they didn't run at all. So it basically would do like maybe a a 25, 15, 30 off, 35, 15, 40 off, some sort of sequence like that. You're probably
0: finding that your folks who come from the roads have a really hard time doing that.
1: They really get pissed off about they're paying me money and I'm telling them to take the day off. Imagine that. Can you imagine that? People would get mad at me because I would tell them to take the day off. I says, you know what? You need to give this one back to your family. Go out with your wife. Have a nice weekend. Yeah. But you need to take some time off. You need to recover. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I know back when I was doing the road running exclusively, every plan I ever saw, every, every time I got with anybody, it was like every weekend's long run. Mm-hmm. every damn weekend and now i don't preach that at all i don't think that's correct at all yeah. i think you need more time off
0: yeah and especially
1: for longer distances
0: so i know that uh one of my ulterior motives for being here well first reason is because having a good talk with joe is always great another reason is because i've got crazy dreams tinkling in my brain as people will be, want to do um, and I'm kind of picking your brain from the aspect of sort of not necessarily from a training perspective, but more along the lines of what am I going to expect? So I, I haven't run, uh, I've run a hundred K before. And as you know, I didn't prepare for that race anywhere near appropriate. No, I and remember I, that. Race. And I did it. And, um, it was very painful and a very challenging. I and remember you had to have somebody talk you into getting back up and it doing a second two loop. two beers and two hamburgers and a bitch to get me back out on the trail. <laughs> that is no doubt about it. Kerry <laughs> Delbeck, if you're listening, I don't think you are, but thank you very much for getting my, me back out there. But yeah, it was, you know, and, and I'm now so excited about running a 100 miler and my viewpoint from it is, is... I know I can't do the things I thought I could do 25 years ago, not just from what I can physically do, but I also know that that's not optimal. So the biggest concern I have now is how do I prepare myself for, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm asking you, because since you're a coach of this and you have so much experience, how do I prepare myself for those miles that go from, in your mindset, so you go 50 to 55, that's only halfway. Like, how do I know, or what what am I going to have to deal with from pushing off from the great unknown? Because for many of the people who are listening to this, they've run 24 miles before a 26.2-mile marathon. Many of them have run many marathons. So, yes, before their first one, not a single person, really, who's getting ready for their first marathon, if they're prepared for it, wonders whether they'll finish or not. But yet... There is this unknown that I'm absolutely going to have to deal with. And how do you make me feel more comfortable about that? Or do you not? (laughs) Or do you say, too bad, bro? (laughs) Well, I think
1: that you and I both know it all begins and ends in your own mind. First of all, you have to believe or at least lie to yourself enough to convince yourself that you're going to finish the race before you even start. You have, to, you have to take that shot. If you show up that start line thinking you're not going to finish, you're not going to finish. You have to show up there knowing that you're going to give it your best shot, that you're going to do everything. You're not going to find, or maybe you're going to find them. You're not going to listen to any of those excuses. Because the thing of it is, is when you're out there that long, you have a lot more time to think You have a lot more time to invent reasons why you shouldn't continue. And that's typically what happens in these races. People don't miss cutoffs. They step off the course. They reach a point where they say, I'm not having fun anymore. You have to decide before you start that you're going to do the damn thing. You're going to hurt. You're going to feel bad. You're not going to run into a wall. You're going to run into a series of roller coasters where you're going to go up and down And basically, it's like your regular life's biorhythm. You're going to have highs. You're going to have lows. But when you're low, you have to remember, you're going to get back up. And when you're up, don't get too excited because you're going to go back down again. And it's just like life. You're going to have roller coasters. And you're going to have to tell yourself, okay, I'm not going to listen to any of that shit. I'm just going to keep on rolling. When I'm having a bad moment, I'm going to back off. I may even sit down, you know. I may take a break, but... When you're up, you need to roll with it. You need to go with it. You need to take it when you're up. And you're going to be up. You're going to be down. I'm The fastest 5K I've ever run in my life was the last 5K of a 100-mile race I did in, in Utah one year, which just still shocks me to this day because your energy and your body is just flipping amazing how it comes from these unknown places. And most of these places are thoughts and memories and little tidbits of things that you have floating in around your brain but you know people run really fast when there's a big dog chasing them (laughs) and you can psychologically put that big dog behind you when you want to Hmm. you can do it so you have to just decide before you start that you're going to finish besides all the other shit you're going to feel bad you're going to feel good again you're going to be ecstatic you're going to be goofy and all over the place the thing is it's not just this this thing you're doing is a thing of deprivations. You're going to deplete your nut- nutrition. You're going to shock your muscles. But what you don't realize is you're going to shock your emotions and your brain as well. You're not going to think clearly. That's why these ultra races allow pacers and crews, because you're not going to think clearly. You need somebody to think for you. Mm. So have a good crew. Have a good pacer. Plan to finish. Simply, Simply plan for success.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I wonder if there's, uh, you know, I'm always looking for mental training techniques for people and I'm wondering if there really aren't any for that space because that is the willingness to be out on into the unknown and saying, Hey, the only thing I can have prepared is my will to survive and my will to finish and anything else is bullshit. You're going to find so
1: many games. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: you're gonna invent new games. Mm-hmm. I swear, there there are a thousand different games, and you're gonna do them all. And one my wife does all the time is is when she gets really tired. She when she gets really tired, she goes faster. And mm. I'm like, how the hell are you doing that? I thought you were tired. She goes, I am. I'm ready to be done. <laughs> so she'll pick up the speed. I'm like, that is brilliant. I love <laughs> it. I love it. <laughs> now,
0: if I could only do that. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny how. Yeah. You probably can too, right? But, but you have a different coping mechanism and you have a different game that you play that works for you. Do you think these games are different? Every, have you had different games that come up, um, every race or do you, do you have a few that recur and that sort of come back moment to moment, you know, they're showing up and then others where you're like, wow, this is brand new. This is a new experience.
1: Right. Yeah. I do have new ones and then I'll have some that I play over and over again. It's, it's all over the place. I'm part of it is me. I'm aging. I'm reading books. I'm uh, coming up with new ideas in my brain. Sometimes I'll read a, a series of books that just light me up and that is those thoughts and those books will stay in my head for the next two months or until I read the next great book and then I'm <laughs> on to a whole new set of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you and I are both into a lot of the military literature mm-hmm. and stories about wars and warriors and battles and, and all that translates well yeah, into what we're doing. I mean, when you go into these races, what you're going to do is you're going to bond with these other people that are basically out there in the trenches with you fighting this battle. Mm. You and these other guys, these other women are all trying to finish this race. You're all going to be best friends by the end of it. You're all taking care of each other basically out there.
0: Because that is a huge difference between the trail running community and the road running communities, that there's a sense of we are battling this distance and this course and these conditions. And not each other. And not each other, which is a... Uh, a substantive, I feel, I'll tell you honestly, I feel like that is changing in the road running world a a good bit. And it may be that I'm changing a lot. So the work athletes that I work with, they're beginning to see, you know, you, I always, I used to walk into the university of Texas. as I coached at UT. I used to walk in, there was a sign that was up with, I guess it was a quote from Mac Brown. He says, athletes are a reflection of their coach. And I always took those words I would not have believed that before, but having been in front of that and seen it, you begin to realize that the aspects that your coach emulates are ones that you resonate with, and so therefore you push them back. And I think that these athletes now are beginning to recognize that there is a community and a camaraderie and a uh, a bigger picture about what they're racing and that the, the athletes that they're running with are part of their family, that the aid station crews are their community, and that they've that even the people who have shut down the roads all of this is part of a bigger picture that is already implicit and understood in the trail running community because it is so – it's hard to be a volunteer at a trail race. I mean, you, if you had a 100-mile trail race, you will be volunteering for 24-plus hours typically. Um, and, and that means that you're in whatever conditions those athletes are in, you're in too, and you're not running. So it's a completely different world, <laughs> and and that world – plays out differently. But I do think that that we are, that it is a different aspect that the trail space is. Um, I do think it's changing a little bit in the road world, but it's always going to be filled with those um, type A, get my goal time, no matter what kind of viewpoint. And again, I'm not belittling that. I, I coach to that, but I also know that there's a deeper well that we're all drinking from. That is as big a picture, a big, as big a part of this as whatever goal time you might run. We, um, we talk a lot about uh, energy,
1: and we talk about um, the energy of the people around you and using their energy for your own benefit. We, um, in a trail race, especially in a night race, you would see a light well ahead of you, and because you saw that light, you knew you were closing on it you closing on that person because you didn't see that light before, which means you're getting closer. So it creates this energy in you to go catch this person, this light. And the thing of it is here you are trying to get to this light. And as soon as you get to it, you suck up that energy and you roll right past them and then head for the next light. Hmm. And then the person you just passed suddenly feels that vacuum. Somebody has just passed them. They've just lost this immense amount of energy and they try their damnedest to hang on and if they can they keep it and if they can't they lose it and we call it the big old energy suck we're just sucking the energy out of these people as you go by them so we a segue onto that is when we're running a race with a bunch of other folks we're running around people there you connect with people that have really good energy you can just feel it they maybe they have a good conversation maybe Maybe they're not saying anything at all, but there's just good energy, and you, you know it, and you just suck into it, and you feel it, and you ride this energy high. And inversely, sometimes somebody will hook on you, or you hook into somebody else where it just feels awful. They're just very negative, or they're saying the wrong things, or they're just looking at you funny or something, and it's just a bad vibe. It's a bad energy, and you try your damnedest to get away from it as quickly as possible. Hmm. And this whole thing, I know we're talking about running, but it, it parallels my life. Mm. My life is the same way. I'm trying to collect and stay near and get near all this good energy and evict all that bad energy. Anybody that makes me feel bad or just pushes me in the wrong way, it's not like I have to say anything. I just need to get away. Mm. And it's the same thing in a race.
0: Yeah, it's similar to what we and that's why we end up getting in the spaces that we choose to get into from a running perspective. No, because more often than not, the people that we're communi- that we're in communion with, whether they're live in person, and I know you coach online as well, you're doing both aspects. You're, you're you're creating that positive energy flow and community flow in whatever space you're in. I mean, and isn't that the whole point of this whole experience of being alive? I mean, isn't that why, you know so many people get uncomfortable when we talk energetics and when when we talk about what energy is but it really is a underlying fabric to reality and and we're not recognizing it as a species and therefore we're in a place where we're challenging um we're we're challenged in our sense perceptions and our ability to see the world correctly. And we're challenged in our ability to recognize our interconnection and that love, however you want to use that. You know what, you could use the same, you could have turned that same word energy into the word love. Now, people will get really squeamish about that. I think they shouldn't, but they can. But it is basically that energetic space that allows us, um, and I think running is this great and amazing path that allows us to get more um to touch base with that in a way that maybe we can bring it into our real life more and to optimize our real life more and to maybe make a better world in the long run.
1: Um to continue on the the topic about uh the people and the energy around him, it's not just people. It's also places. Um I've run up in uh up run up in Washington State and Colorado where you go into these old growth forests and the energy in those places is just so amazing. It's just like you can feel it. And then at the same time, we'll run into some races in that's parallel in a major city where you're running through some areas that have been ripped apart. Um, in Colorado, there's strip mines and stuff like that where it just sucks the energy right out. You just feel bad. It just looks so bad. It's So it's not just what you see. It's what you feel. It's what you sense. It's what you smell. It's... All of your senses are coming together and collecting this energy in different ways. it's It's amazing how all this affects you. and and what you think and how you feel affects how you run. Hmm. It absolutely affects how you run. If if you feel good, you're usually running better. It's not always true, but most of the time it works that way.
0: Yeah, Joe, I was just this weekend, this Pat not this weekend, but the weekend before I was in Bandera for. Where you introduced me to Hill Country State Natural Area, you put on a race there for many years called Bandera 100K. That's still going on. Um, fantastic race, but that that five thousand acres um, is there's something when you there's talk a about magic about that place. A deep magic, yeah. Um, and I had a course I'm taking in a, in basically soul and 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 purpose, like really big fundamental purpose. And I had to go on a vision quest, which was a Basically, supposed to be eight hours on the land. I went for longer, and I went to Sky Island and the, you know, the the East Peak and found an overlook and sat from four a.m from four p.m. until eight a.m. with just me outside and uh, went for a run afterwards. Right, and when I was on that run, I already had a lot of really impactful and, and. experience. And I knew that this place had already informed me through my running that it was a power place for me, at least maybe not for everybody, but for me. And then when I went on my run, Joe, it was just, I could feel that energetic connection and yeah, people are going to shake, you're shaking your head up and down and and knowing every every time I drive out there, I can feel it as I drive in. It just pulses. There's something about it that's powerful. And I do really think that here's one of the things that I think is really for people listening this is a reason to trail to trail run if 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 for no other reason that you can get deeper connected into our world into nature into what it really is the fabric of reality and we've forgotten that by being acidified people in air conditioned and air climatized controlled spaces we go from one climatized controlled space of our home walk 500 no 20 feet to get in a vehicle that's climatized to go into an office that's climatized and yet getting out and getting on the trails, even for a 20 minute, 30 minute, 45 minute run on a single track trail. You know, in Austin, we've got this 15, four, seven and a half miles out, seven and a half miles back, wonderful green belt that also has all these winding paths around it. And in that space, you're connecting, you're still a runner, but you're now connecting to something much bigger and much more. Um, I would call it real. Not that, your reality when you're in your climatized room isn't, but it's it's relatively recent and it has nothing to speak to what we've evolved to become. Um, and I'm not saying that we should all live out in the woods and not have homes, but by getting back to the space, by getting involved in trail running and doing this stuff, you find magic places like Bandera and you can tap into that energetic space that will feed you and fuel you and change you in a really big way. Um, Yeah, we've definitely given them their hippie hippie dollars today, didn't we, Joe? (laughs) And you're not even a hippie. Although I think you really are deep at your core.
1: Actually, I was a hippie back in the hippie days. (laughs) You were an original, an Uh, OG? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I finished high school in 73. (laughs) So I certainly went through the long hair and, and all that other stuff phase back then.
0: Yeah. So... Let's go back a little bit to your, um, tell us a little bit about your race directing and this space that you got into with that. And I know that you're working on, on a book now about putting on races and, and that, and so talk a little bit about how that's informed your experience as a human, but also your experience as a runner and, and being a servant to runners in a sense, because you really are, you're providing these, I mean, you created Tejas Trails, which, Uh, You sold about five years ago, and that's right. those those races, they're still being run, um, and they are magical races. They are races that really challenge people, push them to the edge, Um, and you're responsible for creating this sort of culture, this ethos that now it seems it took people five or 10 or 15 years to get a hold of, but you were the vanguard of this. How did you get involved in that space and trail running, and what made you... Um, I mean, in trail racing and getting producing races, and, and what what fueled you about that? What did you love about that?
1: Oh goodness. I first of all, I became a race director through Motorola and the Motorola Austin Marathon. And, and shortly after that, I started trail running, and I couldn't help but try to put the two together. I'm thinking, that i'm going to these trail races and and a couple of the more famous races uh the, not famous but the ones i knew of i guess in in this country were directed by some of the biggest curmudgeon curmudgeons i've ever met in my life <laughs> i mean there was uh, norm klein in california at western states and at sun martin and there was mickey rollins here in texas and they these guys were just the grumpiest people and yet they were the race directors and i kept thinking you know you could put on a race and actually treat people nice <laughs> and maybe do a better job of it and maybe create a little more community and less animosity towards each other so here I am looking for this warm fuzzy and and I find it in trail running then I find these race tractors that are old curmudgeons and it just seems so weird it was so out of character with what I discovered so I I was thinking, okay, you know, I'm sitting at a race one day, and I'm complaining to to my my buddies about this race director, what an old grumpy is. And my buddies basically uh, psychologically slapped me upside the head and told me to shut the fuck up. Says, if you don't like what he's doing, make your own damn race. At least he's putting on a race. Mm. And I'm like, okay, you're right. I'm an idiot. I'll shut up now. And I, I quit complaining about this guy's race. But the thought stuck in my head, and then I get back here in Austin, and back in those days, I think John Hill was the owner of uh, Austin Mm Tricyclist, and one of his head mechanics there was a guy named Jack Murray, and me and Jack got to be good friends, me and Jack and Steve, and we were all grunts for John Hill when he was putting on some of his races, and I knew John, and John had a duathlon series called The Dirty Dew, and it was off road duathlon and he had an event out at Rocky Hill Ranch and I knew he was doing it and I knew which weekend it was. I'd been out there with him to run at the place. And I asked John if I could put on a put on a trail race there in, in concert with his. And he said, Sure. So I created the kind of guy John is. <laughs> yeah. He said, Yeah, just go do it. So he had the he had the venue, he had the place for the whole weekend. But he was only doing his race on Sunday. So I went out there and created Rocky Hill Ranch 50K, 25K for Saturday. And that's kind of how it got started. Hmm. Started there. And then from that, I did that with John for three years. And then John sort of kind of just told me to go away and kept the race for himself. And I said, okay, well, (laughs) fine. So then I went off and I found Bandera and created Bandera. There was a guy that was putting on a race there who um, he would get maybe 15 people. It wasn't that many, but uh, he quit doing it when the park asked him to get insurance and he didn't feel like buying insurance. So he killed the race. And I went to the park and asked them if I could recreate it. And they said, sure, just fill out all this crap here and, and do it. So that's kind of how Bandera got started. So now I, and then shortly after that, I got Rocky Hill Ranch back. John got bored with it and he gave it back to me. So I took Rocky Hill Ranch back and later on I renamed it to Hell's Hills. And Bandera was doing great. And then Rocky Raccoon was uh, part of a series of races that Mickey Rollins had been doing. And Mickey was getting tired of that. He was about to retire from school teaching and asked me if I would take it. So I did. So now I got these three races and I'm still working as an engineer and still. Then and now I'm becoming a part-time race director just for the fun of it and probably making nothing doing it (laughs) yeah you were working your butt off I was working my butt off I was doing it for fun I like doing it and I realized that I could create a community I could build a fun race and I could treat people nice and charge a reasonable price and give them nice shirts and nice awards and all the stuff that people promise that don't always come through with what they promise. I was trying to be the guy that would do what I said I was going to do. Yeah. And that's kind of how it started.
0: Yeah. You, uh, those races, they still are, you know, they were, they were, they meant so much to me. Um, and the experience of running all of them was, uh, an experience in number one, moving away from the road world and realizing that, uh, there was another way to do it. There was still the pressure and the stress to produce, a, to give a product to the person that paid you their money. And, but there was a different energy and ethos to it. And, uh, you encouraged me to start my own trail series, which I did for a while. Um, and uh, I remember that very yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, let me tell this story. All right. Go ahead.
1: Okay. So you were interested in starting your own trail series, you had your coaching business, and you wanted to put a race into it or wrap a race around it. And you thought a trail series in Austin and you had a connection that you could get the parks, which nobody else could. Right. So you had this sweet connection and you asked me, he says, well, what do you think, Joe? Can you help me with this? I said, yeah. And then you forgot about it. <laughs> And then I went out there and explored these three different parks and laid out the routes and figured out all the distances. And, and then I came back to you and said, OK, Steve. And, and you said, nah, I'm, I don't think I'm going to do it. And I told you like hell. Yeah. I says, I've already spent a lot of time. So we're going to do this damn thing, whether you want it to or not. But maybe I'll direct it or whatever. But it's going to happen. So I forced you to do your own damn races.
0: Yeah, and those races were really crucial too, Joe. I think they provided you recognized at the time that there was a there was this gap between the person that was running five ks and ten ks, and maybe running somebody who would run a the local cap ten k. And there, you know, there were twenty thousand people running a ten k, and yet they weren't finding their way out onto the trail. And you were really an evangelist and an early recognizer that this really. We can not that you would be feeding your races. You certainly weren't looking at it from that perspective, but it was more along the lines of let's give them a little bit of a taste of it, because if they get a taste, they'll find out what we all really need, that we need to get out in nature. We need to get out here and have a different experience of running.
1: Well, here in Austin, too, this whole city was wrapped around the Austin Marathon. And after the Austin Marathon was over, there was a big lull, a big sort of dip in energy and attitude. And we put on those races immediately following the Austin Marathon. So we rolled out of the marathon scene and right into these trail races. So it gave these people, they were finished, they've already accomplished what they wanted to do, and they were looking for something interesting to fill their time before they recycled and started over again for the next year. Exactly. So yep. rolled them right into these trail series. On top of that, my God, we put them in the store and they became a hell of a fundraiser for the yep. store, putting them that, you know, you'd have the packet pick up the day before the race. Yep. I mean, it just worked for the business. It worked for the
0: races. It worked for the runners. It was just a perfect fit no matter how you plugged it in. Yeah, it was awesome. It really did get frustrating when the city didn't recognize The value too that that was being provided for those parks. (laughs) Right. And they kept pulling it away and saying, no, we're going to stop people from. And it's like, well, what do you actually have this park for if you're not willing to close it for basically two hours? It's not even closed. In most cases, we, you know, they continue to put it on in one city park. Um, because that park we committed to doing no matter what, we wouldn't close it at all. And my view is why would we close the park anyway? Everybody can coexist. Right. We never closed the park. Just, just, let know that they're, let the mountain bikers know that there's going to be a hundred people come charging down this trail running fast as hell through that first mile. And they may um, want to wait 20 minutes before they get out on the trail, but otherwise they'll be able to coexist. Like we always coexist on all those trails. But, um, you know, that I think that that's an ongoing challenge, I think eventually, It'll be interesting to see how that plays out for people in the long run. But those were fun years. Um, I don't miss being a race director, though, Jim. <laughs> That's a lot of work. I don't miss it. It's, it's I don't miss that of part of it. You know, it's like there was the the, the part with the park really was, was always whether we were going to be able to do it the next year. And so each year you were sort of like the entire thing. I loved the going out and marking it. I loved, you know, setting it up and doing all those things. But there was always this piece of was I going to be able to actually – do the thing that i was hoping to do and that, that's a level of stress that most humans don't really want to have to deal with on a day-to-day basis there's sure.
1: certainly a lot of stress attached to that yeah i mean because here you're getting entries you're collecting money you're taking care of all this stuff and then maybe a week before the race the park says ah you can't do this yep
0: and you knew it and you always kind of had this knowing that they were already the ones who were letting you do it in the first place but yeah oh well it's a it was a it was a it was a Neither one of us are in the race business now, are we?
1: <laughs> no. No, I am peripherally involved. I'm helping out more now, but yeah. I am not a business owner of a trail event. So tell
0: us a little bit about this book that you that you're writing. That what what was its impetus and and why this topic? Is it a topic that's near and dear to your heart? Or is it, you know, how did it come about? What, what were your thought processes on that?
1: Well, I'd been a race director for over 20 years. And when I sold the whole thing and uh, I wasn't directing races anymore, I thought it would be a good time for me to collect all this information in one place and file it away so it was all in one place. So I wouldn't lose everything that I spent all this time doing. I had no idea about writing a book about it. I just was collecting information. And it was all my information. It was everything I owned, everything I did. And partly I wanted to write a lot of stuff down just to remind me, should I ever be foolish enough to get back into this again, that this is what I had and this is why I did it. And so I was collecting information and kept pushing it and molding it and shoving it into different places and until it started really taking shape. And, uh, I met a friend of mine one time at some party and I was telling him what I was doing. And he says, well, do you want help? Hmm. I'm like, say what? (laughs) I says, what, what is this going to cost me? He said, well, I just want to help you. It didn't cost you anything, but if I invest a lot of time in it, I'm going to be a co-author." And I says, well, sure. Okay. What do we do? Hmm. He says, okay, well, first of all, we need to work on this together. And I don't feel like coming to your house every day for a couple hours so we're gonna shove all of these documents of yours up on Google Docs, mm-hmm. and then we're gonna get a uh, we're gonna get a Viber account so we can talk to each other for hours and not pay anybody a dime. So we got a Viber account. We put everything on Google Docs, and we'd get up each morning and we'd spend about three hours shoving all this stuff into a shape of a book. And Chris had already written a book before, so he knew what to do. He knew the process. He was he knew about editing and and. Correct English. I mean, most people that know me know me that I have uh, don't mind speaking my mind, but my English isn't really that great. (laughs) And it is my only language. So. (laughs) So anyway, Chris was cleaning up my language and uh, tuning the book and helping me put it in the right form. And it kept shaping and shaping until two years of working with Chris. We have a book. Wow. But so what's your plans with it? How do you... I'm trying to figure out the next step, which is mm. publishing, which is a whole different new world that I know nothing about. So I have another friend of mine named Alicia Post, who has her own business and is helping me right now to go through this self-publishing process. I had sent it out to maybe, I don't know, eight or nine different publishers and got pretty much the same answer from all of them, which was they thought it was very well done. They thought it, there was a need for this book. They thought I did a good job. It was well-written, but they couldn't make any money on this because there wasn't going to be a huge amount of people to buy it. So they declined to publish it. Mm-hmm. So they left me on my own terms, which brought in Alicia. And now I'm going through the uh, process of self-publishing and hopefully I'll have this thing
0: done by the end of this year. Cool. Well, I know I've also been wanting to write and am currently working on a few things and, in just my initial and and first stabs at looking at this process i'm almost 100% certain i'm going to go along the route of self-publishing because yeah. the content that i mean you the problem with self-publishing is that you don't always get an editor and and if you you need, as a self-publisher, you need to find and you need to spend your money on an editor and that the money that you spend on an editor will play off in the long term. Sounds like you had an editor. Well, there's <laughs> it, other things. There's like a
1: tool called Grammarly. There's yeah. other things that you can use to help
0: you clean up this stuff. Yeah. So. But there's also a piece of an editor that says, is this the position in the right place for the right reason? And right. are these things done in a way? And I think that right. as long as you've got your, con- I mean, you're a content your content is gold, right? And, but it needs yeah. to be produced, presented in a way that people will pick up and use. And it, I have a strong feeling, Joe, that the book that you produced, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm um, the book that you produce is going to be something that will be dog eared. Um, broken spined and uh, dirty as lots of coffee stains on it. I have a a feeling it's all stains on it. I also feel like
1: it's going to be a a gift giving to a lot of race directors from runners that didn't
0: appreciate how they ran their race. Yeah. That's, that's very true yeah i lo- that's a and an, and in a sense a gift from you to those who didn't do it the way you thought they should have and and a way to give back in that way first too. of
1: all this this book isn't written with the idea of i know how to do it and you don't this book is a list of my experience it's what mm-hmm. i did and what worked for me it's not a this is how you do it as much as this is how i did it yeah right yeah
0: well joe you've done a lot of amazing things for this community and um, I'm sure there's more to come in your as you go along. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, um, how people could find you if they were looking for you. If somebody got sparked and said, that guy Joe, I'd like to work with him, how do they, how do they get a hold of you and how do they find you and how would they um, have an opportunity to work with you?
1: Well, my email is joe at trailzen.co. That's uh, Z-E-N, trailzen.co. And phone number, 512-294-6456. <laughs> they
0: just pick up the phone and call you.
1: Just pick up phone call me. <laughs> I mean, anyway, I am, uh, I'm still coaching. I'm mm-hmm. back coaching for Rogue again mm-hmm. underneath uh, Jason Mallory uh, Brooks, who are doing the coaching there. And um, so I'm still coaching. I'm still reading a ton. I'm working with a group called a Band of uh, Runners who is a group that are working with veterans dealing with PTSD, veterans and their families. And uh, so we do a trail trail camp once a year, and we just had that a couple weeks ago. And so we bring vets in from all over the country and work with them and afterwards stay in contact with them. I'm coaching a guy that's a vet that's becoming a pretty good trail runner and... um, probably start working on the next book as soon as i get this one published <laughs> one about uh, all my race stories that i've written over the over the years
0: oh that'll be a good one yeah i've already one. got all the i've already got them
1: all written now i need to go tune them yeah. cuz my writing has probably improved a little bit since i started
0: i bet I, I can only imagine so well thanks for doing this with me joe i really appreciate it it's great to have a conversation with you and um, looking forward to seeing you on the trails cuz i'm sure i'll be seeing you out there
1: yeah That'll be fun. I'm curious to see what you do next.
0: (laughs) I think a lot of people are. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Joe.
1: Oh, you're welcome.